Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Gresham Society. I believe the very first Gresham Society uh, webinar, where I shall be talking to you about tennis around the time of Thomas Gresham. Uh, you can see one other person with me, and that one other person is not Professor Tim Connell, who is usually the person who will um, introduce these things. I'm introducing myself, but my friend and colleague, Mike Wardle, has very kindly agreed to uh, host the question and answer session after my 20 to 25 minute uh, uh, talk, um, mainly because uh, we think Tim Connell uh, didn't have the balls uh, to take on the gig. Um, so with, with that uh, very uh, healthy and, and, and friendly pun, uh, thanks very much, Mike, for agreeing to do this. I just want to explain to you how you can ask questions uh, during this talk. You have a panel um, on GoToWebinar with a question button. And that is the way to um, uh, send your questions in uh, to Mike, who will uh, farm the questions. Some will probably come up more than once. Um, uh, and will then ask me the questions at the end of the webinar. Uh, please do not ask questions by email if you're in touch with us by email um, in the background. We will get your questions afterwards. And uh, and if you do it that way, I will try to answer your questions afterwards. But we won't see any emails during the webinar. Um, basically, um, the only way you can get a question to us now that we're locked inside this uh, this bubble that is GoToWebinar um, is, is to send the questions through um, the question button in GoTo. Um, so uh, without further ado, and thanks again to Mike, um, I shall crack on with the webinar. So um, in 1561, Thomas Gresham, while residing in Antwerp, provided bridging finance to a young travelling spendthrift, Thomas Cecil, William Cecil's son, who had been living beyond his means in Paris. A few months later, Thomas Cecil and his travelling tutor, Thomas Winderbank, took sanctuary under Thomas Gresham's roof in Antwerp. It seems likely that one of the young Cecil's dalliances in Paris had required the dynamic duo to move on from Paris in a hurry. I see in the end, said the disapproving father in a letter to Winterbank on the 4th of November 1561, my son shall come home like a spending sot, meat to keep a tennis court. This reference is to be found in J.W. Burgon's monumental 1839 two-volume Life and Times of Sir Thomas Gresham, and it seems to be the only mention of tennis to be found in any biography of Thomas Gresham to date. Tennis does not seem to have been a big thing to Thomas Gresham, but it was a very big thing to the Cecil family, and it was a big thing in Tudor times. So why did William Cecil, who was such a massive tennis fan, he even built a tennis court at his house on the Strand, writes in such disparaging tones about tennis in this context. And how on earth did this minor Cecil family intergenerational gripe find its way some 40 years later into a subplot of Hamlet? It's my intention this evening to use this tiny fragment from Thomas Gresham's life as a MacGuffin or a plot device to describe tennis and the colourful characters that populated the game around the time of Thomas Gresham. Now, humans have played ball games with implements since the very dawn of civilization. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written some 4,000 years ago, uses stick and ball games as plot devices, more than once as it happens. But the game that we call tennis 
emerged in medieval times, around the 12th century, probably initially in French monastery courtyards and subsequently in noble courts. It's known as jeu de pomme in France. And this walled, galleried courtyard game played with hard balls became known as tennis in England. Today we call the game real tennis to distinguish it from the modern 19th century game played with vulcanized rubber balls on open courts of grass, clay, etc. Now, real tennis is often referred to as a sport of kings, and there's documentary evidence of tennis as a royal pursuit from the early 14th century. Tennis's first star, for all the wrong reasons, was Louis X of France, known as Louis the Quarrelsome. Now, Philip IV, who was Louis's dad, bought the Tour de Nel in 1308 and had a covered tennis court built within. While Philip was clearly keen on the game, there is no evidence that he played. It is said that the fashion for covered courts emanated from young Louis's love of the game. That love also perhaps proved to be Louis's undoing. Just a couple of years after succeeding to the French throne, Louis X died aged 26, apparently after playing an especially rigorous game of tennis at Vincennes in 1316. Louis X thus became the earliest named tennis player in history. There are three characteristics about Renaissance tennis that might seem alien to lovers of the modern variety of the sport that are vital to understanding what it was about in the time of Thomas Gresham. Firstly, it was originally played with the hand, hence the name Jeu de Pomme, but around 1500, the use of the racket was emerging, the racket, the racket becoming ubiquitous within 100 to 150 years then. Secondly, the game was a wagering game. If the players were of uneven quality, odds or handicapping would be deployed, such that the stakes would be an even bet. Odds might be deployed through, uh, through the scoring, the lesser player being given points, through the cramping of the better player, through restricting their use of the court, uh, for example, banning certain targets, galleries or walls, or a mixture of those handicaps. We still use handicapping today in real tennis for all but the top level competitions. The third point is that noble folk and monarchs tended to become very fond of the game, for themselves, for their sort, while taking great pains to prohibit lesser folk from the playing of tennis or such sports. Here is an extract from an 1801 book by Joseph Strutt, The Sports and Pastimes of the People of England. During the reign of Charles V, France. Palm play, which may properly enough be denominated by hand tennis, was exceedingly fashionable in France, being played by the nobility for large sums of money. And when they had lost all that they had about them, they would sometimes pledge a part of their wearing apparel, rather than give up the pursuit of the game. The Duke of Burgundy, according to an old historian, having lost 60 francs of palm play with the Duke of Bourbon, Monsieur William de Lyon, 
and Monsieur Guy de la Trimouille, and not having enough money uh, about him to pay them, gave his girdle as a pledge for the remainder, and shortly afterwards he left the same girdle with the Cobb d'Or for 80 francs, which he'd also lost at tennis. As an aside, Philip the Bold was not only well known to be an enthusiast of tennis, he was also a great enthusiast for the Pinot Noir grape. Prohibiting the cultivation of the Gamay grape in Burgundy in 1395, and thus initiating the Burgundy's region, Burgundy region's fine wine tradition. Philip the Bold also initiated a musical chapel, um, which founded the great Burgundian school of music. Tennis, wine, and music, Philip was my kind of guy. Now, tennis-loving royals and nobles married for strategic territorial alliance in those days. And I don't suppose that spreading tennis across parts of Europe that other games couldn't reach was central to that strategy. But such marriages seem to have contributed to the spread of the game, or in some cases possibly, the tennis history of the place might have attracted the marriage. For example, Philip the Bold married Margaret III of Flanders, which explains why Cambrai, now in northern France, then in Flanders, became the centre of the Burgundian school of music. But Cambrai was already famous for medieval tennis, as illustrated in a beautiful Cambrai book of hours from around 1300, which can be examined in full online and depicts many scenes uh, from regular life, including several pictures depicting uh, games of jeu de pomme or the long pomme uh, variety of the game. Um, this is one example uh, on the screen at the moment. It is absolutely beautiful. Those of you who like delving into old uh, manuscripts, wherever the uh, manuscript is available online, uh, the, the online transcript of this talk, I put links through to the um, uh, to the open source sites that have those transcripts. Um, and if you're anything like me, you will spend many, many happy minutes or maybe even happy hours um, wading through some, some of the documents, if you like reading old manuscripts or if you like looking at the, the pictures like these. This book has uh, dozens and dozens of beautiful pictures of this kind. Um, uh, now, uh, long pom, or the field version of tennis is an outdoor variety of, of the game and versions of that were also played um, but were played across all tiers of society um, uh, and they probably adopted the use of in implements for long pom before uh, indoor jeu de pom um, and, el and elements of modern tennis and indeed elements of cricket derived from long pom. Um, long pom as a game itself is, is still played uh, mostly in Picardy um, uh, and it is probably the variety of the game that Edward III of England was banning with his infamous 1349 prohibition of sports, including football as well as handball. Jeu de Pont, the court version, was uh, almost certainly became established in Spain and the Low Countries before it became established in England. Um, so long before Thomas Gresham popped up in Antwerp, a famous court had been established there at, at Gorgerhut, uh, just outside uh, Antwerp. Prior to the Tudor period, the limited popularity of tennis in England was restricted to the clergy and guilds of craftsmen in large towns and cities in the south of England. The clergy tended to play the game themselves while prohibiting others from doing so, 
Um, and it is really only for that reason that we have some written evidence of the, of the game in England at that time. But the Tudor monarchs were very keen on the game, um, and it became more widespread, um, a noble sport in England from the late 15th century. Um, it's well documented that Henry VII was a player and a fan. He liked to wager on his games, and his substantial losses are well documented in royal accounting documents. Um, as are those of his more famously tennis-keen son, Henry VIII. Uh, naturally, those monarchs were also keen on banning the game for all but the right sort. In 1493, Henry VII decreed that no sheriff or mayor or any other officer should suffer any man's servant to play at the dice or at tennis. During the Henry VIII's time, several noble courts were built and several others were planned. At Austin Friars, following the dissolution of the monasteries, Thomas Cromwell planned to build a tennis court in his garden, but did not see through his plans. Draper's Hall now stands on uh, that Austin Friars site. But Thomas Wolsey's court at Hampton Court Palace did get built. There is still a court on the original site, albeit at the Stuart period replacement, um, and it's to this day, and I've had the honour and pleasure uh, to play there. Um, the only other court of Great Britain that remains from the Tudor period is the Falkland Palace Court, uh, which was built between 1539 and 1541 by James VI of Scotland. It is the only Joe Quarray court, which is an older design of outdoor courtyard courts without an interior deadens, um, still in use in the world. And uh, my wife Janie and I um, had a delightful game there in 2018. And believe it or not, I succeeded in hitting the ball through one of those small potholes known as, uh, portals known as loons, um, which I achieved more by luck than judgment, I assure you, um, in the course of our match. Some say um, that such a shot merits just one point, others say that it completes a game, and yet others say that it determines um, the entire match. Um, needless to say, the four of us who played that day uh, debated that matter at great length in a neighbouring hostelry after the match. But talking of eyewitness accounts of tennis matches, there is a fascinating report by one of Henry VII's uh, attendants. Um, uh, of a visit to Windsor Castle by Philip the Handsome, another Duke of Burgundy, and he was also the King of Castile, and his queen, Joanna the Mad of Castile. Uh, that was in early 1506. Um, I'll read the quote. The Saturday, the 7th of February. Both kings went to the tennis plays, and in the upper gallery there was laid two cushions of cloth of gold for the two kings where played my Lord Marquis of Dorset, the Lord Howard, and two other knights together. And after the King of Castile had seen them play a while, he made party with the Lord Marquis, and then played the King of Castile with the Lord Marquis of Dorset, and the King looked on them. The King of Castile played with the racket, and gave the Lord Marquis fifteen. And after that he applied his pleasure, and arrayed himself again, it was almost night. And so both kings returned again to their lodgings. Now there's lots of interesting stuff in that eyewitness account. That early 16th century period was a period of transition between hand play and racket play at tennis. 
Most scholars agree that the racket came into use around 1500. So the handicap described as the King of Castile playing with a racket and the Marquis of Dorset playing with his hand while receiving 15, i.e. starting each game 15 love up. Now personally, in that circumstance, I would prefer the racket, but perhaps the Marquis was a very handy player. Sadly, that written account doesn't tell us who won the match. Um, but the story doesn't end brilliantly well for the visiting monarch, who in reality was more of a hostage than a guest of Henry VII. Philip signed some helpful treaties and trade deals to help bring his visit to an amicable conclusion. But still, within a few months, Philip the Handsome died in Spain, probably poisoned or assassinated there. And this made Joanna the Mad even more distraught than usual, apparently. Thomas Gray, the Marquis of Dorset, who as a youngster had been a ward of Henry VII, was by 1508 sent to the Tower as a suspected conspirator against the king. Only the accession of Henry VIII the following year saved Grey, who had a decent run as a high-ranking courtier after that narrow escape. His granddaughter, Lady Jane Grey, was not so lucky, famously the nine-day queen. Coincidentally, one of his other granddaughters, Mary Grey, pops up as a house guest for Thomas Gresham in 1569, thanks to William Cecil again, a perennial supplier of house guests to Thomas Gresham. A politically sensitive and expensive guest, Mary Gray stayed with the Greshams, much to their chagrin, until 1573, by which time Sir William Cecil had become Lord Burley. William Cecil was a contemporary of Thomas Gresham, the two worked well together on matters of state and commerce from the early 1550s onwards. Cecil became Elizabeth's Secretary of State in 1558. By 1560, he was ensconced in Cecil House on the Strand, on the site that is now the Strand Palace Hotel and the Lyceum Theatre. Cecil House had a tennis court designed by Henry Hawthorne, the royal architect. It was, by all accounts, quite a small court, with unequal lengths of penthouse along both side walls. It might have been used for hand tennis more than racket tennis. By that time, the prohibition of sports, such as tennis, had been clarified through several of Henry VIII's statutes. Noblemen and those with an annual income of £100 or more were permitted to possess a tennis court on their own property. Henry VIII's 1541 statute included a system of licensing for public tennis courts and bowling alleys. Mary I abolished such licenses in 1555. Queen Elizabeth reintroduced the system of licensing for tennis courts around about 1567. So when William Cecil vented in 1561 that his son Thomas was meet to keep a tennis court, made to keep a tennis court, fit to keep a tennis court, he was not talking about the dignified tennis court of Grace Cecil House. He was referring to the barely reputable or even disreputable places, they were more or less gambling dens, frequented by idle and misruled persons, as the Mary Prohibition Statute described them. William Cecil was an intriguing and important character during the second half of the Tudor period. Unfortunately for us, he had a tendency to keep everything and to insist on his correspondence being kept which is why we have such a rich treasure trove of material on his life 
and those around him, such as Thomas Gresham. Another fascinating character who entered and stayed in William Cecil's orbit for many decades was Michelangelo Florio, an Italian pastor who converted to Lutheranism and escaped execution in Rome by the skin of his teeth around 1550. William Cecil helped establish Michelangelo Florio in London, where he became pastor to the Italian Reformed Church in the city of London and chaplain to Lady Jane Grey. On this occasion, William Cecil himself gave his guest house room, which led, rumour has it, to the scandalous affair with one of Cecil's servants, which resulted in Florio's marriage to the servant and the birth of a more famous Renaissance uh, uh, humanist, John Florio, depicted here. Soon after John's birth, Lady Jane Grey became the nine-day queen, succeeded by the Catholic Queen Mary, at which point London was not really the place for a firebrand Italian Lutheran pastor and his family. In, er in the early 1570s, John Florio, steeped in a humanist education in Europe, returned to England. Around 1578, William Cecil, by then Lord Burley, sponsored John to study at Oxford, where he excelled and the rest is history. Florio wrote several wonderful works and translated many others, not least, not least uh, Michel de Montaigne's essays, very popular at the moment. Florio's own works include First Fruits and Second Fruits, which are basically primers in the English and Italian languages. Chapter 2 of the Second Fruits book, uh, pages 15 to 29, is a dramatised story of a day going to play tennis with the intention to go to the theatre afterwards. I've got an extract of the book um, on the screen, and again in the transcript, you can click through that extract um, and, and look at the whole book, the whole chapter. The character H in this dramatised story, incidentally, is almost certainly a character based on Florio's pupil at the time, Henry Riothsley, who was the third Earl of Southampton. There's a good deal of insight into Tudor tennis in that little drama, which is a fascinating and amusing read. But Shakespeare, it isn't. However, there are those who believe that John Florio was Shakespeare. I think those people are mistaken, but I do believe that Shakespeare probably met John Florio through their mutual patron, the Earl of Southampton, depicted. Or, at the very least, Shakespeare will have read several of Florio's books, not least the Fruits books and the Montaigne translations. Of course, there are a great many alternative Shakespeare authorship theories, the most popular of which, Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, was yet another of William Cecil's long-term house guests. His ward for about 10 years, from 1562, um, and subsequently Cecil's son-in-law. In the early 1590s, Oxford unsuccessfully attempted to marry off his daughter, Elizabeth, to the Earl of Southampton. These geezers were all moving in similar circles, but that, to my mind, does not provide credibility to such alternative authorship theories about Shakespeare. But then, what do I know about Shakespeare? What is widely believed, and is almost certainly true, is that the character of Polonius in Hamlet was based on William Cecil, and the character of Laertes, Polonius's ne'er-do-well son abroad, based on the young Thomas Cecil. Scholars have suggested the Cecil connection for many reasons, 
But for our purposes, Act 2, Scene 1 of Hamlet um, has the sole mention of tennis in Hamlet, in a context that is reminiscent of the sole mention of tennis in Thomas Gresham's biographies. So, was Thomas Cecil meet to keep the tennis court in the end? He was less adept at stately matters than his dad, and less adept than his younger brother Robert, who became the first Earl of Salisbury and built Hatfield House. Robert Cecil didn't build a tennis court at Hatfield House, but his Victorian descendants built a fine one, a refurbished version of which is still in use there today. But still Thomas Cecil had a pretty successful career. He inherited Cecil House, changing its name to Exeter House, when he became the first Earl of Exeter. So to that extent, he did keep a tennis court. He also bought, in 1576, the old rectory and most of the land that is now Wimbledon Park. There he developed Wimbledon Palace. Thomas Cecil didn't develop tennis courts in Wimbledon. But 300 years later, on some of that land, some other fellows did develop tennis courts of sorts around it, which was the start of a sustained global commercial sporting success, of which I have no doubt that Thomas Gresham would have approved. Time for questions. Uh, well, thank you very much, Ian. Um, fascinating <coughs> trip through uh, Elizabethan, Tudor, and earlier society. Um, I'm particularly uh, fond, I think, of uh, <coughs> Philip the Bold of Burgundy. Uh, he obviously did a very good thing in uh, banning the uh, <laughs> all grapes but Pinot Noir, and so good for him. Um, do please let us have any questions you have um, through using the question panel um, that you'll see on the dashboard. Um, and you can see Ian there on the screen uh, in uh, full flight almost, or getting ready to fly um, in, in tennis. Um, but, but I would like to um, ask the first question we've had, which is how much um, truth is there in the rumour that love in tennis, the scoring uh, system, uh, is a corruption of l'oeuf, um, you know, the, the French egg or the zero? Um, this is a theory, at least. And do you have any any knowledge of that? Yeah, this is this is one of the things that I've looked into, um, and I'm I'm not happy with any of the answers to this one. So my gut feeling says that Lerf, um as an egg, um, and zero looking a bit like a, a, an egg feels right. One of the problems that we have, of course, is that they don't say that in France. And we have no record of them having ever used Lerf in France. Um, so uh, Heiner Gilmeister, who is um, one of the leading authorities on um, on this topic, and his book, um, Tennis and Cultural History, is one of the things that I've uh, enjoyed uh, reading uh, about this. Um, he, he, he actually believes that it is a low country's word. Leaf. I think is, 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 is the word, um, which, which sort of means honour. So um, you're not playing for money, you're playing for honour. And if you don't get any points, you're not going to get any money, but you do have honour. 
I'm not wholly convinced that he's the linguist who's taken an interest in history and I'm the amateur. Um, and and he, he, he seems to think that that is a more credible um, uh, answer. But we don't really have any documentary evidence around that. We have a lot more documentary evidence um, around where the, where the, around the scoring system of 1530-45. Well, it's good you should mention that, because the first question was from Valerie Shrimplin. The next question indeed from Mike Dudgeon. Uh, you know, first of all, is real tennis scoring the same as lawn tennis, 15, 30, you know, 40 game? Um, and do we know where that scoring system comes from rather than just counting points one, two, three, four? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. Um, thank you, Mike. Um, the scoring system of 15, 30, 45 is, is from real tennis. Um, and there is quite a long and slightly argumentative history to it being used in lawn tennis. Um, and I, I have actually documented uh, all of this in, in, a, in a few blog pieces that are, are there and available to everybody. So when you get to uh, all of you who are here, will get a copy of the transcript um, uh, emailed to you in a, in, in a day or so's time. It will be up on my uh, on, on my blog um, as well. The transcript of today's session um, and the um, the first bit of further reading that's in there are the four blog pieces that I've written. Um, uh, on, on the subject generally. And the first of them talks about the, the, the scoring system for real tennis and how old it might be. Um, and the answer is that the use of 15, 30, 45, 60 is, is really lost in the midst of time. So people were asking that question um, in the earliest recorded documents about tennis that we have in the 16th century. In the middle of the 16th century, we have documents that say, why do we use um, 15, 30, uh, 45. Um, uh, and, and the, and the, and the is, we don't know. It's lost in the mists of time. So it, it really is, it really is very, very old indeed. And we can speculate until we're doing the face about it. My personal view, um, and there, there are loads of theories as, 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 as to where it comes from. Most of the theories are bunkum. So people say it's the use of the clock face, but they didn't have clock faces back then. So, People might have used clock faces as scoring devices subsequently, but clock faces came came, came late with 1535 on. Um, what we do know, back in the midst of time, and that I referenced the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, right at the start of my talk, um, uh, uh, is that even in the very, very earliest civilizations, um, we had counting systems, and they tended to use the counting system based on 60. And they used the counting system based on 60 because 60 is the most wonderfully divisible number. Um, uh, they also used abacuses. Um, and they used abacuses that had a bit of base 10 and a bit of base 60 in them, but they definitely were using base 60. Um, and they liked the number four. Uh, and we know that they, that they liked the, the, the number four because we've, we, we have found, uh, rules, um, written on, uh, 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 uniform on tablets uh, to the royal game of Ur. We have found the four-sided dice that they, they, they used for, for these games. So we found quite a lot of stuff that goes back to very ancient times of using the number 60 and dividing it by four. So not suggesting that they played tennis, but it might well be that bat and ball games, which they were definitely playing back then because it's in the Epic of Gilgamesh, were using this style of numbering um, at the very, very dawn of, uh, of civilization. Medieval people latched onto uh, to these things uh, quite a lot. The Greeks latched onto tuples for geometry. 
medieval people use basics to quite a quite a lot as well. So that that I think is 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 where that that comes from. That's all quite well documented in 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 my uh, blog pieces that I stated myself. So if you really want to know about that, have a have a little read and look at the pictures that are available there. That's super. Now we're getting a lot of questions coming in, so we're going to rattle through some of these. Okay. Um, so a question from Tim Connell. Um, did Tudor players form any kind of league, and how did they meet up? Well, I don't think they formed a, a, a league. They met. They met up because they were nobles and they were visiting each other. So you know, when Philip, when Philip the Handsome was uh, uh, visiting Windsor against his will because he was shipwrecked and was not allowed to leave again until he'd signed some treaties. This this might, by the way, be a, a, you know, if there's anybody from the government here, this might be a way of us getting our trade deals resolved in in, in the modern era. It seems perfectly perfectly reasonable approach. Uh, to me, to kidnap the person and not let them go again until they signed a trade deal. It's, it might be illegal, but it's very specific and, uh, uh, and slightly you, illegal to do that. Um, you, you can let them go. You can let them go if they beat you at tennis, of course. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, no, as far as we know, they didn't play any sort of leagues in those days. What we do know is that they played um, a world championship uh, in 1740. For the very first time, so we think uh, the Georgian period is the is the earliest, and that is the earliest known um, sort of international competition. And it wasn't a league; it was it was a challenge. I say was still is um, a, a, a challenge championship. Um, it was won by Clerget the Elder in 1740, and it is still going today. Um, that that world challenge, and as far as we know, that is the longest continuous um, sporting. Um, event of, 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 of any kind. It was last fought in 2018. Um, here, it would have been fought in 2020, but for the um, COVID pandemic. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and a question, um, just, just asking, do, do you know anything about sort of real tennis in Italy? Is, is there uh, anything you've found out in your researches about uh, the spread of this to the Mediterranean countries? I'm glad you've asked that question as well. Um, it, it was unquestionably played um, uh, in Italy. And in fact, the first treatise on tennis, um, which again is available online. And if you go to, I'm pretty sure it's the, it's the first of my papers. I've actually done some extra trying to more than one of, of those blog pieces. You can click through um, to, uh, to that treatise. Um, um, and, and read and, and read about tennis was uh, produced in Italy, um, uh, in, in Italian, um, under the patronage of the uh, of the Duke d'Est, um, uh, by a chap called Antonio Scaiano, if I remember correctly. And it is from that that we get quite a lot of this stuff around the scoring system and uh, and, and, and the like. So we that, that, that from that treatise and some other places that that, that we know that. They looked on uh, the 1530-45 scoring system as, as going back to um, uh, to the mist of time, and that was written around about 1550. So they were unquestionably playing it there. We're pretty sure it started in France, and that the, the spread of you know, French monarchs and Burgundians into the, you know the Habsburg um, uh, spread um, led to a spread of the game throughout Europe. It was definitely played in Germany in the in, in the mid 16th century as well, um, but basically it was being it was being played throughout Europe. Okay, um, Bobby Scully has asked the question, how many playable real tennis courts are still around today? 
uh, and where are they? And a follow-up and uh, question to that is, you know, why do we think that it isn't as widespread as other racket sports, such as squash? Because you know, actually, there are a lot of similarities in terms of, um, you know, the the, the 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 way it's organised and the space you need to play. Okay, it, it, it's quite different in terms of the way that the, the, the space that you need to play compared with squash. Um, so uh, to answer the first part of the question, there are about 50 throughout the world. The number doesn't change um, all, all that much. There are quite a few abandoned courts that you can go and, and visit, have a look at. But in terms of courts that, that still play, there are about 50 of them. Um, you, you can go online and just 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 see a, a list of all of them. I mean, it's, it's very well well documented. The only one, the only jeu de Quare court that, that still plays is, is, is Walken Palace. The rest that still play are all uh, jeu de Dedans courts. And we have, I will try, I will try to get this right. I think there are about 10 in, uh, in, in the USA. I think there are half a dozen in Australia, four or five in France. There's one that's just about to reopen, I think, in Bordeaux. Um, and, and the rest are all in the, in, in, in the UK. The vast majority are in the UK. And um, they are large. So, um, the, 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 they're not all the same size, but a real tennis court, um, is about the size of a doubles court of, of lawn tennis, um, and that needs a heck of a lot more space um, uh, than, than than a squash court. So, you know, take for example the court that was built at the Harbour Club um, in, in in Chelsea and was popular for a while. They decided that commercially it just didn't make sense for them to have one real tennis court there, and I think they converted it into um, into a few squash courts. Um, and that and 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 it, and it is down to um, uh, expense. The balls are made of, uh, uh, by hand. They're solid and they're made by hand. Um, uh, so it's a game that needs a great deal of curating. Um, so it's not, it, it's, it's not a game where you could make it commercially viable to set up a court and have a payment for a, a tenner an hour. It just, it just doesn't work like that. It's, it, 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 it's quite an expensive hobby. It probably would have been cheaper for me to become addicted to cocaine. <laughs> this is probably healthier. A question from Graham Elliott, who references Shakespeare. Uh, in Henry V, there's a reference to the Dauphin's gift of tennis balls, you know, taking to indicate scorn. You know, and he asks, is a reference to Prince Hal in the Tavern Society or the more effete royal sport of a lazy prince? Well, hard to tell. He, he, he's got that Agincourt, uh, Shakespeare's got that Agincourt reference. There is a poem about Agincourt from the 15th century. Again, I reference it in, 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 in my papers, and that's that's where Shakespeare um, got got that idea. Um, would he have thought of it as something that that, that lazy people did? Maybe, maybe yes. I think I think maybe yes. I mean, if 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 if, if Shakespeare was sitting around having a few beers with with with, with John Flora and the Earl of, of Southampton, hearing about you know, William Cecil's son and how it drove William Cecil's distraction and, uh, and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, the, the, the quote that I used at the, at the, at the start of this, uh, of this slide, which is a quote by the tutor, not a quote by William Cecil, where it said, you know, for, for games ever, for, for his studies never. He, 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 you know, at that age and stage, he was, he was up for fun and he wasn't up for his studies. And, fr and frankly, there are people, I, I now know there are people who are in, the, in this very webinar room who know that I was a bit like that when I was <laughs> well, 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 on that note, I mean, David Seidel asks how the possibility of leaf or honour 
you know, relates to playing strip tennis, uh, is the honour keeping your clothes on? <laughs> <laughs> I've never played strip tennis. Whether he, whether, he, whether he knows anything about your university life or not, I, 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 I haven't played. <laughs> but, you know, there we are. But, but, but um, I suppose we, we can call Philip the Bowles tennis strip tennis, can't we? If he had to leave his girdle as surety for his, for his debts. <laughs> that is a form of strip tennis, I suppose. doesn't feel very you know, regal. Was... Not, not very regal, but re- I think the, uh, the world, world you can do what they like, can't they, really? Um, do, do we know any more about the transition from hand-glove hand sport to, to racket sport? And obviously, and there are still, you know, um, the ancient game of fives, which is still played using um, a leather glove uh, in a smaller um, hazard. Court, my addiction is small. Yes. Uh, um, but do, do, do we know any, any, any more about the development of the, the racket sport? I, I suspect that more is known. Um, I, 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 I couldn't tell you much more than I told you um, during this this talk. So, um, I mean, again, the Gilmeister book probably explores this in, in, in quite a lot of detail. And there will be, uh, you know, documents and pictures from various stages of the um, uh, 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 the life of the games. We, we, we do suspect that the long pole, the game that they play in a field where they would be trying to hit the ball further, you know, it, that, 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 that they would have used implements, you know, the idea of kind of throwing the ball is just to see how, how far you can get it. That, that wouldn't have been a great bit of fun. So they were using implements for that. And then probably the idea of, hey, you know, why don't we use the implements? We've got a big court here. Why don't we use the implements in, inside to send, send, send the, the, the ball around? Um, I, 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 I would guess the balls are hard. So if people started playing with the palm, I mean, really playing with the palm. I mean, I've, I've, I've played fives, and if you play fives with a, with a glove that's, that's, that's wearing out, you, you, know, you know about it. So you, you, you want a bit more padding. So I, 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 I suspect that people were actually sort of hurting themselves and thought, no, no, I definitely have to have a glove. And then once you've got a glove, you might as well have, you know, a handle and, a, a, and an implement at the end of it. And it probably just, just grew from there. It sort of makes sense if you've got a bit more space and really want to, you know, have a lot of fun running around. Um, re- remember, they didn't have the technology to make sophisticated balls. In, in mm. those. So the, the wonderful, very round, leather-coated fives thing that we use, the canvas round like the clappers, they didn't have that. They were making the balls with hair at the core and winding it up very tight and, and, and wrapping cloth around it. So you probably needed to give it quite a whack to make it, to make it move a lot. So an implement would make it more fun. No, no, we, we, we're getting almost to the end of our time, but I just wondered, um, for those of you, those people who maybe don't know really what real tennis looks like, um, you know, have you got anything to describe what real tennis uh, looks like to an observer? I'm glad you've asked that question. Uh, this is the one, this is the one prepared question that we had because Mike suggested this, um, when we were preparing for today. And I've got some little uh, video clips that I can, uh, uh, that I can show you. If I can work out how to use the te- technology here, I, I have to say, by the way, that, that on one occasion when I tested this, I might not have known what I was doing when I tested it. Um, we lost um, uh, me completely from the from the webinar. Um, so, so if I just disappear at this point, goodbye and thank you for coming. Uh, but what I hope I can do is, is, is show you a few uh, very short clips. So this first one um, is uh, is singles. Right. And uh, finally, because that, that, that was me, in case you didn't realize it, um, 
I'll show you the people who last contested the world's championship that's been going on since 1740. So I'll show you how it's really supposed to be done. This is uh, Rob Fay and Camden uh, Riviere uh, playing some uh, extraordinary stuff. So that, that's that's how that's how it should be done. And I will. There's about five minutes of those amazing clips. I will rack those um, video clips up on my transcript as well. So if people want to have a, another look at those, and particularly look at some more of the uh, uh, of the of the real real tennis players playing. Um, you, you, you can have a look at that. It's quite, it's quite extraordinary and it is absolutely extraordinary to watch it, to watch it live sitting in one of those galleries. Well, thank you so much, Ian. Uh, we are, we have really run out of time, um, uh, but there's a number of questions that we haven't managed to get to. Um, so for example, Mike Dodgen's asked, um, you know, about, you know, is there a relationship with lacrosse? Uh, Edward Brindle notes it looks a bit like a marketplace. Was there any, any knowledge about the, the, the origins of the shape of the court? Uh, William Joseph comments that when Zien accounts transgression society, it's bound to be eclectic, informative, and off the wall. Um, asking if there's another of these in the wings, um, and uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, and someone asking about sort of what terms uh, in our language come from tennis. Um, you know, there's things indeed like off the wall, cutting to the chase, going from pillar to post. Um, so there's a huge amount of uh, interest um, being sparked by this. Um, I'll make sure, Ian, that you get a list of the questions afterwards so that you can go back to people and engage with them um, and uh, to try and answer those questions. But it sounds like we could have gone for um, a good a good other 15, 20 minutes uh, quite easily. Um, so it just remains really to, to thank you very much. Uh, to thank the audience, uh, thank you for attending and for being so engaged. It's all exciting to um, have a topic which generates uh, questions and interest. Um, we can't unfortunately give in a round of applause uh, live um, from all of us, so you'll have to make do with a very small round of applause uh, just from me, but you can imagine that multiplied um, throughout the, the, the audience. Um, so thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, we will need to close now. Um, Thanks, everybody. But over to you for the last word. Bye, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.